0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North.
1: Sorry, I thought we like just completely cut the show, so uh, this is what happens. I want to blame Klaus Schwab. I don't know if I can on that. That might have just been like me sitting on my mic back. Apologies for that. You wouldn't believe we are professionals, really. But anyway, uh, one of the things that I wanted to share with you here is that we are in the country of Austria right now. We are actually in Donburn, Switzerland, where we were forced to basically look outside the area that we wanted to stay in just because the World Economic Forum was so bent on keeping people out. So all of that is to say we are still here. We are driving lots. We're seeing the beautiful Swiss Alps and the Austrian Alps, I should say. So maybe you'll get a little bit of a... Re- A reprieve from uh, me uh, if I just get like uh, run off the road or something by some errant mountain goat. But uh, nevertheless, we are really fully committing to covering this uh, conference where the theme is rebuilding trust. And we'll uh, talk about that a little bit. But I wanted to give you a a bit of a scene setter for what you can expect this week. I'm joined in Davos by my producer and videographer, Sean, who you can't see, but I understand you heard a few moments ago he made a rare audio cameo on the program and also by true north uh, journalist and editor cosman gerja who is uh, with me i was gonna say in studio he's joining me in my hotel room which is not nearly as salacious as it sounds i i promise you uh cosman good to have you uh, joining us in in davos here let me just ask you because you're a first timer at this you've not seen this uh, conference in action before what
2: is what have your early impressions been here i think the uh, most extraordinary impression i've had is the fact that life goes on in davos i mean driving through the city you see you know school children returning home uh, you see people walking around biking etc while at the same time all of these global elites descend on this place to set the global agenda so it's a really interesting juxtaposition that happens Where you see ordinary people going about their everyday lives, yet there are consequential decisions being made at Mm. this conference.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's interesting because you're right in some ways, like there are still locals here. But it's also weird, and I've talked about this in the past, that like all of these stores that exist every other week of the year are just completely gone and when you walk down the main drag, it's like, you know, the India Pavilion and the second India Pavilion and the third India Pavilion. And so it's like, I remember the first time I, I came, I was looking on Google Maps ahead of time and saying, oh, that might be a good restaurant to check out. And then you get there. It's like, oh, the restaurants just picked up and, and left town because uh, the World Economic Forum is here. So uh, the theme this year is rebuilding trust. They, they've got, you know, some heavy hitters on the lineup. There's the, the premier of China, Li Chang. There's uh, Javier Malay, who's the the president of Argentina, who interestingly has been here before as an economist. Uh, Emmanuel Macron. No one officially from Canada, as far as the Canadian government is on the speakers list. Now, whether they'll they'll make appearances, I I don't know. But what is it you're looking out for this week?
2: I think the uh, issue of trust kind of like underwrites everything mm-hmm. that's happening here, and uh, True North has reported on their global risk report which the world economic forum releases every single year and the number one issue that they chose in the short term for 2024 was misinformation Mm -hmm. and disinformation and i'm interested to see what some of the speakers will say uh, are the solutions to these proposed problems how do we deal with what they call misinformation or disinformation and the consequences, which I think they think is the declining trust in the institutions that they're a part of. So, solutions might, what they might look like, uh, I I expect some bizarre and heavy-handed propositions being made. The other major thing is uh, AI seems to be everywhere at this conference this year there are a bunch of different pavilions and we are having uh we are going to see the uh ceo of open ai samuel altman mm-hmm. showing up and and discussing giving a panel and uh so I, i'd like to see what he has to say
1: yeah and i actually have a, a clip that I'll, I'll share a little bit later on in the show of, of klaus schwab like six years ago or seven years ago talking about ai and, and it is interesting to see. I mean, it, it's one of those things where we don't quite have an answer in society to how we deal with this. And and so I, I'm very, I'll say nervous about how politicians who don't really know much about the issue are going to come away from this conference where they are talking about it a lot, uh, thinking like it's it's just, you know, some know nothing politician who's here. Like I, I ran into earlier Chris Coons, who's a senator in Delaware. I presume this guy who's like, you know, 70, has nothing do with ai doesn't know anything about it but he's the type of guy who could like be in some panel and they all say this is something's a good idea and he brings it back to washington and says you know what we ought to do so i i'm nervous about that and so in the case of sam altman you know maybe he can you know bring bring something relatively sensible to the discussion there also has just been this massive massive number of sessions i saw on the agenda devoted to climate change and like every possible angle imaginable there's like you know how to transition away from fossil fuels how to transition to renewables how to accelerate the transition net zero net zero net like they're doing it's like the same discussion like 20 different times and we even saw a little bit of that walking around today on the streets like there was the one we were going to go into the climate hub but the climate hub hadn't opened uh until tomorrow so we'll 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 give you the full report on the climate hub on tomorrow's show but uh, that seems to be a really pervasive theme here as well
2: Yeah, no, climate seems to be top of mind still, but it's not the theme of the conference. Mm. That seems to have changed uh, to an entirely different issue. And while I think, you know, we we came here on the day where protests were happening, and all of these left-wing protesters were pressuring the global elites to take more action, uh, calling them hypocrites, etc., and... If you're here in Davos, one of the things that you see is like the helicopters flying by. Mm -hmm. We 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 know that there are private jet terminals. You know, when I arrived here at the airport, there were designated World Economic Forum areas waiting for these global people to come. So they're all flying in, and the hypocrisy is mounting. And I do think that uh, they're aware of it to some degree, right? And it, it, it'll be interesting to see how long that continues, how long they will keep pushing this climate issue yeah. when it's apparent to everybody that they are not really part of the solution. <laughs> yeah, and, and it just,
1: I mean, as a as a, an illustration of this, we were trying to find, there's like all of the, you know, they, they take the private jets in, And then when they get to the private jet terminal they transfer from a private jet to a helicopter and then they take the helicopter to davos and then they get from the helicopter to a limo and the limo takes them to their hotel it's a it's a really sustainable way of doing these but we were trying to find the heliport and the reason we couldn't find it on on a map when we were looking is because it does it's not actually a heliport the rest of the year it's a farmer's field so it's like what better illustration of the world economic forum's approach which is just like cover up the farmer's field with helicopters for all of the, uh, the jet-setting elites. All right, well, we uh, are looking forward to seeing what you do the rest of the week, Cosman. Uh, it is great to talk to you and great to have you here at all as well on True North. Uh, we are here on the Andrew Lawton Show, and I just want to give you a, a little bit of a teaser here. Cosman had mentioned a story, or, I, or Cosman had done a story today, and I, I had alluded to it earlier, when uh, Klaus Schwab appeared on Chinese state media, and he was, like, talking up how China is so critical in helping rebuild trust. Take a look.
0: I think it's very, very important. Um, The participation of Premier Li Chang could exactly be placed into this framework of rebuilding trust, because um, as you know, um, uh, there are many doubts at the moment whether China really could master all those challenges or is at the beginning of a fast slowing down phase of its economic growth. So to hear uh, Li Chang um, speaking about the prospects of Chinese economy and the role China will play inside the global economy I think, uh, can restore and rebuild to a large extent, not only grows into China, but grows into our global uh, system.
1: So right there, he I mean, he's sucking up, basically is what he's doing. He, he's talking to Chinese state media about the premier of China, one of the most senior officials in the Chinese Communist Party, And he's saying, oh, yes, China's great, it's China's moment, it's China's world, which, look, I guess is a rare bit of honesty on this issue. But it shows what this organization is all about. They want to suck up to big power. They want the big corporate giants and the big political giants to all be under one roof. And Klaus Schwab is the guy that wants to sit at the head of the table for reasons that you know may make sense to him. But if you look at it from the perspective of a citizen of this world, of a country in this world, I should say, you're like, well, hang on. He He's not an elected head of state. He's not an elected head of government. This is not an intergovernmental organization. This is not the United Nations, which, whatever you may think of it, at least has official standing. This is just a group. I mean, the Andrew Lawton Show could have a, a forum, and we could invite all these people, but we don't. And more importantly, if we did, all of these leaders would not want to sit there and kiss my ring like they do Klaus Schwab. Now, admittedly, I can't entertain them in a 24-million-franc a swiss villa maybe uh if we do a, a few more uh you know successful election coverage uh, election coverage uh, experiences in canada we'll we'll get up to like the level where we can have like a nice villa in oshawa uh, but certainly we're not doing a swiss villa so uh that's exactly what's happening in the case of klaus schwab he's enriching himself he's empowering himself all the while sitting back and telling his people that as you heard in the clip uh, last year is a future is built by the people we are going to be seeing on the streets of Davos. Now, on the theme of rebuilding trust, I had to share this clip with you because I think this is going to set the stage for what we see a lot of in the week ahead. This is how Klaus Schwab, in that same interview to Chinese state media, CGTN, described the conference theme.
0: Now, why did we choose the theme or the motto, uh, rebuilding trust? if we compare the world uh, today with the world before uh, we had the covid pandemics we we signed a completely different mood first um, uh, the world has become very fearful um very fragmented of course um and um in such a situation um trust has vanished we have lost trust to a certain extent in each and other because we all have become under the pressure of the crisis of the multiple crisis. We have become more egoistic. So, um, and if you are more egoistic, you think first of yourself and this distorts an atmosphere of trust. So if we want to recreate and that's the objective of the annual meetings this year, we want to recreate a new spirit, a much more constructive spirit. Mm-hmm. Again, looking forward and having confidence in our future. And that's the reason why we have uh, chosen this uh, theme, um, rebuilding trust.
1: So interesting that when he talks about the failure of a society to trust institutions, which is valid. I mean, if you look at uh, polling and surveys, you can see this time and time again. Trust is in decline. No one trusts the media. No one trusts government. I dare say no one trusts the World Economic Forum. And who is to blame for this? Well, he says people are to blame. People are being egotistical. People are being selfish. They're thinking only of themselves. This is the Klaus Schwab ideal here, that the institutions are not the problem. The rest of us plebs are problems for thinking only of ourselves and not valuing these people. How dare we not look to the dear leaders of the World Economic Forum and realize all the good they're doing for us. They're there to help us. Yeah, I don't quite see it that way because some of the ideas that are discussed here are things that may, in a very esoteric way, uh, be entirely normal discussions to have. But to real people, these are not normal. And, And one example of this is a discussion from 2019 between uh, Klaus Schwab and uh, Sergey Brin, who is uh, one of the founders, I believe, of Google. And the discussion was about AI. Now, this was 2017. You think of where AI is now, and, I mean, ChatGPT is going to reprimand you if you misgender someone. But uh, in 2017, it was still all uphill and all upside to a lot of people. They, they realized that the it was a blank slate. Who knew what was going to come of it? And this is what Klaus Schwab and Sergey Brin decided to talk about as just one of the use case scenarios they saw as potentially coming about from AI.
0: So technology now is, and digital technologies mainly have an analytical power. Now we go into a predictive power, and we have seen the first examples and your company very much involved into it. But since the next step could be to go into a prescriptive Uh, mode which means um, uh, you you do not even have to have elections anymore because you can already uh, predict what uh, predict and afterwards you can say why do we need elections because we know what the result will be
1: Why do we need elections? Because AI has told us the result. You know, elections are big business. There's a, a lot of money that goes into elections, to running them, administering them, to running campaigns. What if we just say, hey, JATGPT, who should the next president be? And it will spit out an answer, and uh, that's that. Now, I, I looked up this clip because th- this was circulating uh, today, and I, I knew it wasn't today because the conference, as I'll talk about in a moment, hasn't officially— I mean, it started, but the, the main sort of meat of the sessions have not— begun and won't until tomorrow, but I was wondering the context of this, and I looked it up, and the first thing I found when I looked it up was not the clip, but it was an Associated Press fact check of the clip saying, uh, I'll read it directly for you because I think this is kind of funny. You heard the clip yourself. The headline, the World Economic Forum's Chairman Didn't Call for AI to Replace Elections, the claim, a video shows Klaus Schwab, the founder and chairman of the World Economic Forum, calling for artificial intelligence to replace elections. AP's assessment, false. So their argument here is that, no, 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 he didn't call for it. He just mused about it. Like, this is their answer. Like, oh, he just he wasn't endorsing and he was just saying it's a possibility. Yeah. But the fact is those ideas, those possibilities are entirely normal to the people gathering here in Davos. But they are not normal to real people in society facing very real challenges, who uh, understandably might have a declining level of trust and faith in institutions, including, by the way, in democratic institutions. So that is where we are as a society now. And uh, Cosman and I were, were talking a few moments ago about some of the things that are being discussed here. Misinformation, disinformation are key. There are panels, sessions that are being done about freedom of expression, and I'm going to say from past experience, there are unlikely to be panel discussions about the importance of protecting freedom of expression. Uh, it was something that actually came up earlier when I was uh, speaking with Jonathan Greenblatt. Now, uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, I have a number of disagreements with. He is the uh, executive director of the Anti-Defamation League, which is an organization that has done a lot over the years to call out what they say is hate, mainly anti-Semitism, but hate in general. And I I was chatting about this with Avi Yamini of Rebel News earlier because he had a a much less friendly interaction with Jonathan Greenblatt shortly after mine, which was by all accounts quite convivial and civil. And Avi, who is Jewish, had a a bit of a different perspective on this because he said the ADL has been crying wolf for years. So now when you have real virulent anti-Semitism around the world, Uh, no one is really caring about it. And that was Obby's perspective, which I'm sympathetic to. My approach was very different. I went to my discussion with Jonathan Greenblatt as a Canadian, where we have a government, a government who has promised to regulate what it says is the scourge of online hate, a government that has promised legislation, regulations of social media, human rights laws that will prohibit the dissemination of what they say is online hate. And I wanted to talk to someone who has made a living combating what he sees as hate, what he thinks of these sorts of pushes. And I must say, I was actually quite impressed with his response. Take a look. I'm here with uh, Jonathan Greenblatt from the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, In Canada and countries around the world, we hear about how online hate is uh, one of the big menaces to society here. But obviously, especially in an American context, First Amendment protections, constitutional freedoms. So how should governments approach this in your view?
3: I think government should approach social media like all traditional media. So if in your mainstream media you have laws about libel or you have regulations about slander or about misinformation, they should be applied equally and enforced regularly with respect to social media. So it actually shouldn't be considered very differently.
1: If a government is going to regulate hate speech, how
3: should they define what that is? I don't know that you can regulate hate speech, mm-hmm. but you should make the companies liable for publishing libel. It doesn't matter whether it's Facebook or... Uh, the CBC. So if the CBC is responsible for making sure that uh, lies and, and whatnot isn't published or isn't broadcast, the same thing should apply to Facebook in Canada. The same thing should apply to every other social media in Canada.
1: You've obviously had a bit of a spat recently with Elon Musk and, and Twitter. Is, is your view that this is just a market-based uh, solution that needs to happen here? Uh, individuals can boycott them and, and that's that?
3: Well, I think individuals need to make their own decisions about what media they choose to use. RANDs need to make their own decisions about media, where they choose to advertise, but ultimately governments need to make the decision about how they think the media supports, uh, you know, supports the open society that they want. Again, just so we're clear, I don't believe that you can censor hate speech. I think hate speech is the price of free speech. The trick is that the private companies have a responsibility as actors in the sort of the marketplace to behave responsibly, and that often doesn't happen.
1: Hate speech is the price of free speech. That is a remarkably lucid and accurate comment. Now, admittedly, Jonathan is speaking about this with a bit more authority because he lives in a country that has far more ironclad protections for free speech. The First Amendment in the United States is much stronger than Section 2B of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But nevertheless, the point that he's making there is a valid one, that we cannot regulate and should not regulate hate speech, but we need to enforce laws that exist offline onto online scenarios. And and that's actually very key. And Bruce Party and I have had this discussion in the past, the Queens University law professor, that we already have criminal code provisions on hate speech. We already have defamation laws. We already have a number of laws that apply anywhere. They apply in a classroom. They apply in a workplace. They apply on the street. They apply in a theater. And if they apply in any place in Canada. They also apply to the internet. So that was one. And again, I don't believe he's on the freedom of expression panel I mentioned early. but uh, if there is at least someone making that comment on that panel, it will be very much needed, I think, for world leaders to hear. I have a message I wanted to share with you from Sheldon, who writes on YouTube in all caps, uh, so as to uh, indicate uh, that he's whispering it in a very calm and even keeled way. Uh, He says, focus on Canada, Andrew. So this is a a fair comment. I am not in Canada right now. I am uh, several countries away. I'm at the World Economic Forum. I was in uh, Davos. I was not an invited guest of the World Economic Forum, but we are here doing the reporting anyway. Now, this is not, to me, a distinct thing from what we do on this show generally. The reason that we are at the World Economic Forum is not because we are covering things that matter to the world. They are, and we are, but uh, we are covering things that matter to Canadians. And there are a few direct reasons for this. Number one, we have a country with very deep ties between the government of Canada and the World Economic Forum. christopher Freeland, who is the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, is a member of the Board of Governors of the World Economic Forum and has never answered a reporter's question, to my knowledge, about why she thinks she can do that without it being a conflict of interest. And I'm going to, if I see her, I don't know if she's coming this year. If I see her, I'm going to ask her, and I might get the full Menzies treatment and be uh, tackled, although I don't believe the RCMP have jurisdiction in Davos. So let's hope the uh, Swiss uh, Polizi treat me better than the RCMP treated David Menzies last week. Uh, So that's one of the ties. We also have a situation in which the World Economic Forum has, by its founder and chairman's admission, Klaus Schwab, uh, penetrated the cabinet. In Canada. Now you may think, oh, well, it's a mistranslation, it's bravado, but he is making a claim to have profound influence over the Canadian government specifically. Now, I do not believe, as I've said on this show in the past, that Klaus Schwab is pulling the strings on what happens in Canada. I think we have Justin Trudeau and Christian Freeland who have their own ideological agenda, which happens to align with a lot of what's discussed at the World Economic Forum. But the WEF positions itself as being a hub and a basis for ideas. They talk about being ahead of the curve, talking about the future. So when politicians and business leaders are all sitting around the table discussing, these ideas are really germinating and becoming policy eventually. In some cases, it's very quickly when you have these uh, government leaders that meet behind closed doors in the multilateral rooms at Davos, and then they come out and say, we Uh, reach this agreement or this pact or this accord. But in other cases, it may be the seeds are planted that will shape over time to become policy. So anyone who thinks that what happens here is not directly relevant to Canada is not thinking big enough. There are people in this uh, climate that we're in right now, I'm not talking about the chilly mountain weather, I'm talking about the political climate, that are all too willing to put global needs above national needs, to put communal needs above individual needs and and by extension, individual freedoms. And that's why we're here. That's why we're covering this. And I, I'm sorry, Sheldon, but this is focusing on Canada. Just because we're not in Canada doesn't mean it is not a focus on our country. And Mark Carney, by just, I'll give you a little bonus one here. Mark Carney, who is the uh, former Bank of Canada governor, he's here uh, and he is speaking. And Mark Carney is a guy who has his eyes on replacing Justin Trudeau. So at the very least, uh, we have a direct Canadian political story as well. Now, Mark Carney in the past has always been very friendly when we've uh, seen him. If you have my question that I should ask Mark Carney this year, let me know in the comments. Uh, because he always he, like he he owns the streets of Davos basically, so he's just like walking back and forth all day, every day. So we'll uh, we'll get to the Mark Carney stuff later in the week, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, just before we get to Chris Sims, who is joining us, we are. I just wanted to give you a little bit of a rundown of what's going to happen this week. So. This is technically the first day of the World Economic Forum annual meeting, but the official opening remarks, the main sessions, they all start tomorrow and run until the end of the week. They run until Friday. We'll be doing the Andrew Lawton Show live every day this week as we normally do, but at a different time. And I promise you we will uh, iron out the tech glitches we had at the beginning. I, I just, again, I'll blame Klaus Schwab because... It's easy when we're covering the uh, the World Economic Forum. But, but no, I think it was just like uh, me sitting on my mic back. So nevertheless, we will sort all that out. But just before we get to the uh, next topic, I, I wanted to share something which I think is incredibly important here. In years past, the World Economic Forum has published ahead of time, in some cases weeks ahead of time, the list of people participating. So they have from around the world, uh, three thousand in the past, two to three thousand people, uh, depending on the year, that are business leaders, government leaders, media leaders, academics. They're all invite only. Uh, They have their coveted white badges with blue lines on them, which means they're really important people. And they publish a list because the WEF is a big business. It's worth about uh, they they have half a million or sorry half a billion U.S. dollars in revenue every year. So this is a company that I, I read one report today. If it were a private corporation, it would be valued at like a billion dollars. So this is a a big business. And in order to be relevant and keep the money flowing in, they need to prove that uh, people believe this is the it place to be. So that's why they published the list. This year, they didn't do that. They didn't publish the list of participants. They also didn't publish the list of public figures. They gave like a one paragraph write-up listing some of the leaders of government and heads of state that are going to be here, but they didn't publish the full list. So actually, I'm here, and I have no idea who from Canada is here except for those who were on the speaking program. And the only Canadian I saw was Mark Carney. So maybe a Christian Freeland's here, maybe not. Maybe Francois Philippe Champagne is here. Maybe Pierre Polyev is here. Who knows? Maybe Maxine Birdie. I don't know. I don't think they're here. But uh, the whole point is that we do not know because the organization that says it wants to rebuild trust won't even publish the guest list of its Fancy Alpine Conference. So uh, this is just a a bit of a palate cleanser. We will have more coverage from Davos via Austria in the days to follow here on the Andrew Lawton Show. But I I do not, I want to, to Sheldon's point from earlier, uh, neglect or ignore what's happening in Canada. I know for people in Alberta, it was a very, very rough weekend. Uh, We had uh, temperatures. My friends in Alberta, of which I have a great many, were sharing screenshots of their... Uh, temperature readings and of thermometers. And it, it just looked absolutely miserable. I think at some places it went down uh, below minus 40. And because of this, you have the Alberta government telling people to not use electricity to rein in their electricity usage. Now, uh, many people in Canada have reined in energy usage because they can't afford the carbon tax or the hour bills. Uh, but it was a bit of a different situation in Alberta. Uh, Saskatchewan to the rescue, by the way, Scott Moe Uh, announced that uh, Saskatchewan was giving a bit of surplus power to the people in Alberta. Uh, But what does this all mean? Chris Sims is the Alberta director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and joins me, as always, on Monday. I'm not going to let the Atlantic Ocean get in the way of this. Uh, Chris, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. How are you keeping, by the way?
4: We're okay. It was actually pretty scary there on Saturday night. Uh, a lot of people might be familiar, you know, any 80s kid that remembers the Cold War. This is an emergency broadcast system. It was like that. And <laughs> Instead of being worried about the Ruskies, uh, we were worried about the lights suddenly going out. And when it's minus 42 outside without the wind chill, that's pretty scary because then you're getting into like pipe bursting cold. So if all of a sudden your power goes out and you're in the middle of a January in Alberta with this kind of wind and this kind of cold, um, that was pretty alarming. And then we saw, to your point, Premier Daniel Smith taking to social media and saying things I never thought I'd hear her say, saying things like, Hey, folks, um, only use your microwave. Don't use your oven. You know, cover your windows with your curtains. Turn off all your lights, please, everybody. Like we have to make sure we don't have rolling blackouts. And this is largely, apparently, because a few years back, a previous government had shut down some power plants, but they didn't replace the generation. So just apparently, the story goes, we've lost a lot of power generation here in Alberta, and we've added a lot of people coming to Alberta, myself included. So they've really wanted a larger population of people coming here, lots of people moving here to do business as well. So the grid just couldn't take it, apparently. And the Alberta government says that they're really being hindered by federal government regulations when it comes to expanding their power base. And so here we had this strange situation of a province of Alberta, which if you close your eyes and picture it, you imagine natural resources, right? You picture them as like an energy patch. But here we were facing rolling blackouts, luckily that didn't come on Saturday night. And so... I wanted to remind people that this was how scary and critical it was. This is how essential it is to be heating your home. And Prime Minister Trudeau is nuking us with a carbon tax on home heating as well. So it just really added insult to injury.
1: Well, yeah, he, he heard the warning about having to use your microwave. That's why he's nuking, uh, nuking. It's <laughs> a terrible pun. I'm sorry.
4: Uh, no, the, yeah, it was twins.
1: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But. but let me ask you about the electric vehicle aspect, because this was like buried in the list yes. of things we weren't supposed to do in Alberta. They're like, you know, oh, and delay charging your electric vehicle, which is good. I think like, the
4: alert like, went out,
1: yeah. Basically, it's just like, you know, three city blocks in Edmonton are all the electric vehicles in Alberta, I think, in, in uh, downtown Edmonton. But uh, but then you had this ridiculous CBC story I wanted to, uh, to share with people. I, I know you've read it, but basically what CBC has said here is that uh, the winter is the perfect time to have a an electric car? Their uh, headline here: Electric cars the best vehicle in frigid temperatures. They're saying. Uh, meanwhile, the government is like, no, 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 stop charging these things. We can't sustain it on the grid.
4: Yeah, exactly. This is literally part of what they said: Turn off all unnecessary lights and electrical appliances. Minimize the use of space heaters. Delay use of major power appliances. Delay charging electric vehicles. Okay. And so, okay, I'm not an electrical engineer, but I was a journalist for an awful long time. So I've spoken to you know a quadrillion people about all sorts of things, including things like electric vehicles. The story goes is if you have your own electric vehicle, quite often you have to have an upgrade to your panel at home in order to be able to pull enough juice off the grid to plug your own car in. Okay. Therefore, it uses a little bit more power than a laptop to charge the thing. The point here being electric vehicles use a lot of energy in order to recharge their batteries. The idea that while we're all being told to avoid using hair dryers and blenders, to have the CDC come out and say, "Hey, you know what's awesome in minus 50 wind chill, which it was here in Lethbridge by the way, an electric vehicle" While the alert itself is saying folks don't do this, this is where good intentions or fanciful notions or good planning, you know, I would love it if we all ran off dilithium crystal generators. I'm a Star Trek kid. That would be fine. The only problem is they don't exist. So that's a bit of a big problem when you've got minus 40 degrees outside and you don't want your house and your kids freezing. So to have this CBC article come out at this time was just bizarre. Yeah, and and, the, and when you mention the... I,
1: I happened to get that lithium crystal reference only because uh, Ezra used it in his book Ethical Oil uh, back okay. in the day. So I learned it there, not from Star Trek. I'm a, a bit of a, a weird... A, a dork for, you know, for a different reason like that. But, I was
4: going to say, we have to convert you. What
1: the heck? Yeah, okay. fair enough. But I, I don't do sci... I don't do aliens. I don't do sci-fi. So uh, it's not it's not just Star Trek specifically before all the Trekkies uh, jump on me here. But the thing that I, I would point out here is that everyone who talks about the transition misses what is the most painfully obvious point, which is that we don't yet have the magic thing that we can transition to that will do all of the things we're getting rid of can. And to put this back to the World Economic Forum context for a moment, uh, we have people here uh, that are on these panels talking about, oh, the acceleration of the transition, net zero, all of this. And and none of them have an answer for how you're going to get the people in Alberta through a cold that is minus 40 of how you're going to power uh, the developing world, which right now only has fossil fuels available to them, like none of them have or really care about that, and and it's it's very you know fanciful maybe I I would say uh, quite callous to be honest.
4: It is callous because at the end of the day these are real people involved. So these are real people, real families. These are people who are depending. In some cases, imagine you're depending on an oxygen tank or something. God forbid. You know, you need electricity. You need power. I'll give you an example. There's a gentleman out in British Columbia. He is a scientist, Okay, He does these calculations all the time. We happen to disagree even on the carbon tax, so he's not completely on my side here, but he understands energy calculation. A few years back, Andrew, you might have remembered when he did this, he calculated that, say, Santa Claus brought everybody in British Columbia an electric vehicle. Boom, you now own it. It's in your driveway. And British Columbia residentially started relying on electric heat pumps for bare minimum. So we're not talking industrial, forget commercial, just households. They would need nine new Site C dams. Nine of them. So for folks who are unfamiliar with Site C, imagine those big honking gorge dams that you've seen on TV and in movies that James Bond runs across. They're building something like that right now in British Columbia. It has taken them like 30 years from first blueprints to final approval to get this thing going. That's the kind of megawattage we're talking about. They would need nine of them tomorrow if they all switch to electric vehicles and bare bones heat pump electricity.
1: Yeah. And I we, we don't have it. To, we, we, we go back to all of these uh, different scenarios that we've talked about in the past on the show. And and. You know, and and to bring it back to real people, because I think real people need to be at the core of an energy transition if there's going to be one. And uh, real people's needs, real people's, cap- people's capabilities, and and we see that callousness on display with the carbon tax. And I, I don't want to sound like a broken record here because I know this has been coming up in our discussions and other days on my I show pretty much every week now. But it's important, and the federal government has made a choice here. They they like to say that oh well, it's the climate emergency, we have no choice, but they do have a choice, and they have chosen. To make energy, which is not a luxury item, it is a necessity, especially in Canada, but anywhere, they've chosen to make that more expensive.
4: Yes, they have. And here's the nub. So the Liberal government, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government, have a mandatory minimum carbon tax. It's $65 a ton right now. It costs $0.12 per cubic metre of natural gas, $0.10 per litre of propane. But most people in Canada use natural gas. On average, Andrew, that will cost uh, Canadian families more than $300 extra just this winter, just in the carbon tax. But here's the weird catch. So back in October, for some reason, the Atlantic Caucus of the Liberal Members of Parliament got a hold of Justin Trudeau and said, hey, we need a car vote. He admitted, one, that this makes life too expensive. And he admitted, two, that they could afford then to give them a car vote on furnace oil. Only 4% of Canadians use furnace oil. Almost all of them happen to be in Atlantic Canada in vote-rich seats for the Liberals. So he gave an exception on home heating for three years to those folks. But all the rest of us who are using natural gas and propane, praying to God the power stays on, we're still getting hit by this carbon tax. And just one more thing, Andrew. You're going to be hearing a lot about, oh, rebate checks landed in bank accounts today because there's a huge propaganda push. Coming out of the Trudeau government today saying, you know, thank, you know, thank me. Thank me, peasant, for giving you a rebate. No, no, no. The parliamentary budget officer himself has shown that people pay more than they get back. So on average, the average Alberta family will be out more than $900 this year. That's net. That's with the rebates factored in. So, yeah, you're right. This is a huge carbon tax punishment on an essential like home heating.
1: Yeah, that, no, that's important context here. And again, my my sympathies to anyone in Alberta who had a, a terrible weekend. I mean, you're in for a, a number of a number of horrors with the cold weather in general on uh, a given year. But I know this was particularly straining and, and trying for people. Uh, the good news is uh, Stephen Gilbo is actually fine with having to reduce electricity because he is already a dim bulb. So uh, it was good. He was already energy efficient in that respect.
4: Has he, have you seen him yet? Did he fly his electric hoverboard over there yet? No, I I haven't seen him just yet. Yeah,
1: he might've been in the Greta Thunberg sailboat. Uh, He he left last week, so he should be making it to Davos uh, anytime in uh, 2026, I believe. So uh, well after the next election though. So uh, good for uh, a contestant in his riding perhaps. Chris Sims, always good to talk to you. We'll see you back on the other side of the Atlantic next week. Thank you. Have fun, Andrew all right thanks so much that does it for us stay tuned more dabos coverage not just on the andrew lawton show but elsewhere on true north uh follow us on x our email list our website and if you are able to please do support our coverage over at donate.tnc.news it's very much appreciated and like i said we're here because we are covering the stories that no one else seems to want to so uh, we will talk to you all tomorrow thanks for
0: listening to the andrew lawton show